You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Parables of Jesus, a look at the stories Jesus told and what they mean for us today. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In, the pla- in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And truly, your word is to us full of, of these hidden treasures. And especially when we come to the parables, that's really what they're about. And we pray that as we seek to know your ways and we seek to know you this morning, Lord, that you would help us to find the treasures hidden in these stories. And we pray, Lord, that not only would we understand them, but that you would Help us to apply these things to our lives because, Lord, we don't just want to be hearers of your word. We want to be doers of it. We want to let these things not only come into our minds, but we want them to sink into our hearts and we want them to have an effect on us and change us. So, Lord, we pray that you would do that work. We thank you that you are here, that your spirit will work this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. November 16th, 1992 was a day that changed Peter Watling's life forever. It was a day on which uh, it all began a little bit roughly. He lost his hammer, and he probably thought, man, this day is not starting out well. It began with me losing my hammer. But in the end, losing his hammer was the best thing that ever happened to Peter Watling. Let me tell you why. Peter Watling was a tenant farmer, which means that he didn't own the land that he farmed. It meant that he rented it. He was just a farmer trying to do his best to scrape by and make a living on a small plot of land in Suffolk, England. One day he was out working in his field and, as I mentioned, he lost his hammer in the morning. Two concerns came into his mind when he realized that his hammer had been lost somewhere out in the field. First of all, he didn't really want to spend the money to go out and buy another hammer. Secondly, there was the concern that what if this hammer ends up, as I'm going through the field later with a piece of equipment, what if the, you know, the hammer gets caught up in the equipment and causes damage to my equipment and that, that'll cost me more money and just more troubles? So he says, I have to find this hammer. It's pretty important. So that afternoon and that evening, he searched the field, walked up and down all the different rows, you know, looking for this hammer that he had lost at some point that morning. He couldn't find it. So he slept that night, and the next morning he woke up, and he called up his neighbor, who lived a little bit down the way. His neighbor was a retired gardener named Eric Laws. Eric had a small metal detector, and Peter asked Eric to come over and bring his metal detector over and help him find this hammer because he was worried, you know, what if it gets caught up in his equipment, it's going to ruin his equipment. So Eric Laws, his neighbor, brought over his metal detector, and they started walking around the field just with the metal detector looking for the hammer. At one point, the metal detector started going off, and so they started looking around. But it wasn't the hammer that they found. 
just a little bit below the soil, they found a silver spoon. Then they looked a little bit further and they found another silver spoon. And then they found some coins and some gold jewelry, which seemed to be of some antiquity. What would you do? What would you do if you found hidden treasure in your field? Well, here's what they did. They followed the rules because the rules there in England are that if you find something like this, you have to report it to the authorities. So being men of character, Peter Watling and Eric Laws reported this to the Suffolk County Council there in England. And the next day, they sent a group of archaeologists who came and they did an emergency evacuation, or sorry, excavation of the site. Just a few feet below the surface of the ground, they found a chest that was full of bags. And in these bags were found the largest collection of gold and silver and bronze coins from the Roman Empire that had, has ever been unearthed. 14,865 coins made of gold, silver, and bronze, along with 200 other objects made of gold and silver, or what was found in this treasure trove. And Peter and Eric, of course, are very excited. I mean, these are just simple farmers trying to make a living, and they've just come upon this huge trove of treasure in the ground, truly hidden treasure. But here's the thing. The British government has a rule that if you can't prove that that treasure that you find on your property belonged to your family, you have to give it back to the government. So they said, oh, great. So, you know, we found this treasure, but we have to give it back to the government. But the British government agreed to pay them face value for what they had found. So after a few uh, months of review and appraisal, a committee appraised what is now known as the Hawksney Hoard at $4.5 million, which they immediately paid out via check to Eric Laws, the man with the metal detector. Now, of course, Eric, being a, a man of character and integrity himself, he realized that the only reason he was on that field in the first place was because his friend Peter Watling had asked him to come over with his metal detector, so they decided they're going to split the money 50-50. And I know what you're wondering. What happened to the hammer, right? Like, did they find the hammer? They did find the hammer, thanks to that metal detector. And... Peter Watling that day decided, you know what, I don't need this hammer anyway. He decided, now I just made a bunch of money and I'm retired. So Peter Watling retired that day and he gave that hammer to the British Museum to be part of the display of the Hawksney Hoard, which is there. Anytime you go to London, you can go and see it for yourself. Don't you love stories like that? These stories of hidden treasure of a person who's down on their luck or just scraping by and then all of a sudden they come up on something that unexpectedly that changes their life, changes their, their fate, their destiny forever. Last week, uh, we took a few days off and we went up to the mountains. My family and I, we stayed in a hotel room for a couple nights and I turned on the TV one time when we were eating dinner and I started watching Antique Roadshow. My wife was, uh, came into the room and she's like, what are you doing? Why are you watching that? I'm like, are you kidding me? Why am I watching this? Because it's incredibly exciting. There are these people here who have these things that they found at garage sales, right? They, they find these things just laying around grandma's house. And then they come and they bring them and they get appraised. And it turns out these things are of incredible value. I was watching this one lady had this doll which belonged to her grandmother. She got it appraised for $20,000. Just an old doll laying around her grandma's house. And sometimes you hear stories like this, right? Like the guy who buys a painting at a garage sale for $10. And then he finds out that behind the painting, there's an original copy of the Declaration of Independence. And you're like, wow, that's the kind of thing that only 
happens once in a lifetime until four years later, a guy goes into a Nashville thrift store and spends $2.48 on an old print of the Declaration of Independence. He takes it home and he starts thinking to himself, you know, maybe this is actually a little bit older than I thought it was. So he gets it checked out and finds out that it's actually one of 200 known original copies of the Declaration of Independence, and he sold it at an auction for $500,000. It's stories like that that make you start looking around your grandma's house with new eyes, right? You start getting really interested in visiting grandma, and every time you drive by a yard sale, you start wondering, wow, what would it be like? What would it be? I wonder if there's something there of great value that no one realizes. I wonder if there's something there that, what would it be like if I stumbled upon something of incredible value that would change my life forever? Maybe you heard the story a few years ago. There was, it was all over the news. It was on CBS, 60 Minutes, uh, about a man named Jay Miskovich. Jay Miskovich was an unemployed person, but he had a hobby. His hobby was deep sea diving. And Jay Miskovich claimed that he had bought a piece of a treasure map in a bar for $50, and he used that treasure map to go off the coast of Florida and find a treasure trove of, of gems that was just from the Spanish back in the day and that just covered the seafloor. Well, it turned out it was all a big hoax. It was, a, it was a scam that Jay Miskovich had made up to make money. But before he got busted, Jay Miskovich had conned a bunch of people into investing $8 million, writing him checks for $8 million in the promise that they could get in on this hidden treasure that he had found. You see, there's something about hidden treasure that fascinates us, that captivates our imaginations. It's the reason why people pay, play the lottery. I don't even play the lottery, but I've thought about what I would do if I won the lottery. Maybe you have too. It's that prospect that maybe there are things of great value out there just waiting to be found. And they could, if you found something like that, if you happened upon it, if that happened to you, it would completely change your life, change your destiny and the course of your life forever. And so it's no wonder why when Jesus spoke to this crowd of people on that day, that had gathered to hear him speak. It's no wonder that he began talking about hidden treasure. You know, it would have been even more relevant to them in that day than it is to us in our day. Because in that day and age, they didn't have a banking system like we do. If you had money or if you had wealth, you had to find something to do with it. You had to keep it safe because people would come and steal it from you. You know, my, my wife's mother was from Peru. She's from Lima. And in Peru uh, and in other developing countries around the world, they do the same thing in, in Ukraine, for example, currency is so volatile that uh, you don't want to keep a lot of money in the bank because if the currency suddenly devalues for whatever reason, then you could lose everything overnight. And so what people do, what like for Rosemary's uh, family, for example, in Peru, what they would do is they keep their money in gold or in jewelry, but then you got to hide it somewhere so that it can't be broken in and stolen from you if someone does uh, come into your house and, and rob you. So what people would do is they'll hide it in compartments, you know, secret places in their house. You know, it's been said that, you know, hiding things in a place where no one will find them is the best way to lose something, which is absolutely what I do all the time. Uh, or, you know, you might hide it in a compartment in your house or under something, or, or you might bury it even in a, in a certain field if you were, had land. But then what happens is sometimes people die unexpectedly. And if they were the only one who knew where the treasure or the wealth was hidden and that secret died with them, then you have legitimate hidden treasure on your hands just out there waiting to be found. This actually happened to my wife. When her mom died, uh, she had hidden all of her valuables 
and she died without telling anybody where they were. And so they had to go through the house for three weeks looking in all kinds of crazy places until they actually found her valuables uh, stored in the bottom, hidden in the bottom of a garment bag, right? So we're fascinated by this idea. We're captivated by the idea of hidden treasure, of finding something of great worth that could change your life in an instant. And so Jesus says, let's go there. Let's talk about that. Now here in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus makes a change in the way that he teaches Up until this point, Jesus has been very straightforward in his approach to teaching about God and teaching about himself and what he's come to do. But now, opposition to Jesus and his message is increasing. And Jesus has made some pretty radical claims up until this point. He's claimed that he's the Messiah, right? That he's the savior of the world sent by God to save people. Jesus has claimed that he can forgive people's sins. He's claimed that he can give people eternal life. And some people heard him say that and they said, hey, wait a second. Those things that you're saying that you can do, those are things that only God can do. And Jesus said, exactly. And people didn't necessarily like that. Uh, Jesus was calling people to follow him and believe in him and promising that he would forgive their sins and give them eternal life and that he would be their savior. And some of the Jewish religious leaders didn't like that. And so there was a growing opposition against Jesus and his message from the Jewish religious leaders. And so what Jesus does at this point, starting here in Matthew chapter 13, is that he changes his style of teaching and he starts teaching in parables. Even his disciples ask him in in verse 10 of this chapter, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you talking to the people in parables? And Jesus explains in the following verses. He says, there are two reasons, there are two things that I'm doing with this. In one way, I'm speaking in parables in order to reveal truth to those who want to understand it, who want to receive it. But on the other hand, I'm doing this in another way to conceal my message from those who don't really want to understand it, they're just looking for a sound bite, you know, something that they can use against me and pin against me uh, to discredit me. Because that's what they were doing, you know, just like today, we, you know, in a press conference, they'll try and take out little sound bites and say, can you believe that he said this? People were doing this to Jesus all the time. And so in order to prevent them from being able to do that, Jesus began speaking in parables. They were illustrations and little stories, analogies that help people understand the spiritual truths that Jesus was teaching in ways that they could relate to. But here's the thing, if the critics in the crowd were looking for something that Jesus would say that they could use against him, they wouldn't find anything because at the end of the day, he's just telling stories, right? But see, those who were really listening, they would pick up what he was putting down in these stories. And if they didn't get it, then they would stick around afterwards and Jesus would explain the stories to them once the crowds had dispersed. Those who really wanted to know, he would explain it to them in just plain talk. The title of today's message is Hidden Treasure. Now, not only is it called Hidden Treasure because these particular parables that we're looking at deal with this topic of hidden treasure, but also you could say that hidden treasure is really describes the essence of what Jesus' parables were about. They were amazing truths hidden in these little stories that he told. And to discover the meaning, that it wasn't obviously apparent all the time. Always, it wasn't always right there on the surface. Sometimes you had to dig a little to find the meaning. And it reminds me of one of my favorite Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 2, the first couple verses, it says this. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight, 
and raise your voice for understanding if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So here a crowd has gathered. We read earlier in the chapter, Jesus has gone out in a boat so that he can address the crowd more easily from the boat as they're gathered there on the shore of the lake. And Jesus says to them, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now let's stop right there. These parables here in Matthew chapter 13 are known as the kingdom parables because each of them begins in the same way. The kingdom of heaven is like And then he begins to to give an analogy. So the first question we have to ask is, okay, well, what even is the kingdom of heaven? Now let's think about it. How do you decide where a person's kingdom, if they're a king or a queen, how do you decide where their kingdom is? Or how do you determine how far their kingdom extends? Where are the borders of their kingdom? Well, someone's kingdom is going to be the place in which they have rule and where they have reign, where they are honored and recognized and revered as king or queen or sovereign. And so the kingdom of heaven is anywhere where God has rule and reign. And so in one sense, the kingdom of heaven is something in the future that we will enter into, those of us who believe. But in another way, the kingdom of heaven is something that is here in part and will be at one time in fullness, right? So in one sense, the kingdom of heaven refers to what we think of as heaven, as a place where those who put their faith in Jesus will one day enter into. But in another sense, the kingdom of heaven is, is also here and now in part. Wherever God has rule and reign and is honored and recognized and revered as king, and that's why Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's why he said the kingdom of heaven is among you. That's why he said it can even be within you. And so it begs the question, that we all need to ask ourselves, does God have rule and reign in my life? Does he have rule and reign over every area of my life? Do I recognize him as my king? Are you part of his kingdom? So the kingdom of heaven is both a then and a now. You could put it this way. It's an already, but a not yet. The kingdom of heaven is here in part, but the day is coming when the kingdom of heaven will be here in fullness, right? We long for that day when things will finally be right, when there will be no more sin and no more suffering and no more pain and no more death forever. We long for that day, but here's the point. We can experience the reign and the rule of God in our lives here and now, which is why when Jesus came on the scene, his message was, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe. Change direction in your life. Make God your king and give him rule and reign over you. You know what the kingdom of heaven is like? It's like treasure that was hidden in a field. And a man found it. And realizing what that treasure was, I love this part of the parable he says in his joy he goes out and sells all that he has so that he can buy that field or you don't like that analogy let me give you another one the kingdom of heaven is like a a merchant looking for fine pearls who upon finding one pearl of great value goes out and sells everything that he has so he can buy that pearl Jesus once posed a question it's a question which is just as relevant today as it was when he first asked it 2,000 years ago the question is this. It's found in two of the Gospels. Jesus says, what does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their own soul? What does it benefit you if you are successful in every area of this life, if you're successful professionally, financially, even in your family, you have just got a perfect, you know, great family, but in the end, you lose your soul. 
What have you actually gained? What have you really profited? See, here's the thing. All of us have a debt before God. It's a debt that we're incapable of paying. But the message of the gospel is that God loves you so much that Jesus came and he paid that debt for you in your place. And as a result, you can be forgiven and you can have a relationship with God in which he comes into your life and he changes you and transforms you and even works through you. You get to walk this earth holding the hand of your creator, the creator of the universe and calling him father. And when this life is over, you get to have everlasting life in his kingdom forever. What an incredible treasure that is. Can you even begin to wrap your mind around how great of a treasure that is? There was a young man who came to Jesus one day. He was rich and he was powerful and he was young. The Bible calls him the rich young ruler. Everything he needed or wanted even in this life, he had it. It was all taken care of. But the, there was still something that bothered him, that kept him up at night. There was something, a thought that haunted him at night. And that thought was this. I know that this life is taken care of, but what's going to happen to me when I die? I don't know what's going to happen to me if I die today. I, I don't know what, where I would end up. And so this young man came to Jesus and he said to him, Good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? It says that Jesus looked at him, and I love this phrase, it says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. That's important to remember in light of what Jesus is going to say next. Jesus looked at him and he loved him and he said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you come and follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. That's a promise. But it says that that man walked away that day sad and sorrowful because he had many possessions. In other words, he said, I'm sorry, that's just the one thing that I'm not willing to do. The one thing you're asking me to do, get rid of all my stuff and follow you. So what was Jesus doing? Is he calling everybody to do that? No, you know what Jesus was doing? He was pushing this guy's buttons in particular. He knew exactly what was going on with this guy. And he said, look, man, if you really understood what I'm offering you, if you really understood the value of what I'm holding out to you, you would be willing to give up everything you have. You'd be willing to leave it all behind right now, and you'd never look back. You'd just call someone, tell them to put it all up for sale. In fact, you know what? Free. Just take it. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm just staying right here, and I'm going to follow Jesus from this day forward. I'm never looking back. But instead of doing that, you're worried about what this is going to cost you, what you might have to give up to follow me. And you're comparing the things that you have back home to what I'm offering you, and clearly that means that you don't get it. You don't understand the value of what I'm offering you because if you did, you wouldn't even have to think about it twice. You would give it all up in a heartbeat in exchange for the treasure that I'm offering you. I think there are so many of us who are like this rich young ruler. We're so worried about what's the cost going to be if we really give our life over to God. What's it going to cost me? What am I going to lose? What am I going to have to give up? We're worried about what we might lose if we really go all in, if we live wholeheartedly for God. I remember having those feelings myself as a young man. Having understood the gospel, I wanted so much to know the love of God and experience forgiveness and, and live in a relationship with God, but yet I was worried. I was worried about what am I going to have to give up if I really take that step and, and become a Christian for real. Look at this parable. This man who stumbled upon this treasure hidden in the field, did he have to give anything up in order to take hold of it? Absolutely. In fact, it says that he had to sell everything. 
He sold all of his positions. He, he did have to give some things up. Maybe he owned pieces of land. Maybe he had to sell his house, even sell his car and his TV and his laptop. I don't know what kind of things this guy had that he had to sell, but he had to sell everything. Why? Because there was something better, right? In order to get something better. And that's really the point. Is it going to cost you something in order for you to take hold of the treasure of the kingdom of heaven? Maybe, probably. In fact, it may even cost you everything. But is it worth it? Absolutely. It's more than worth it. No question. It is more than worth it. The man in this parable, do you think after he sold everything to buy this field, do you think he was sitting around thinking, man, I miss all that stuff I gave to get, to get this dump, you know? He says, man, I really miss all that stuff I gave up to buy this field. No way. You know what this guy was thinking? He was thinking, I cannot believe that I have this incredible treasure. What does it benefit a man if, they, if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? And Jesus adds on another line to that afterwards. He says, or what would a person give in exchange for their soul? Let me ask you this. Is there anything in your life which is a hindrance to you having a relationship with God because you're so afraid of letting it go that you're holding on to it at the expense of not taking hold of the kingdom of God? That's the question Jesus is asking. I would encourage you to consider that question and ask yourself because what Jesus is saying is that it's not worth it. It's not worth holding on to anything that would keep you from this greatest treasure that even exists anywhere. Jim Elliot has this famous quote. Jim Elliot was a young man who excelled in, in school academically. He excelled in sports and he had all kinds of, uh, you know, offers from different colleges to go and play sports at different places. But he turned them all down in order to go to Wheaton College, which is a Bible college outside of Chicago. And he wanted to go to Wheaton College because Wheaton College specialized in training missionaries. And so he, he gave up this career in college sports and all these bright prospects he had for, for lots of other things. And he went to Wheaton College and he, he became consumed with this idea of taking the message of the gospel to people who had never heard it before. And there at Wheaton College, he met other like-minded people who also were burning with the same passion. He met a girl and ended up marrying her. She had that same passion. And they went down to Ecuador and they found this group of people who lived in the jungle. They were called the Alka people, the Alka Indians. And they started uh, they, doing everything they could. They, they moved down to South America and they started trying to reach out to this people group, giving them gifts and, and kind of peace offerings to say, hey, you know, we, we want to uh, just... We want to be friends with you. And they wanted to reach out to them, learn their language, tell them about Jesus. And so finally they made contact with these people. The whole time Jim Elliot had been keeping a diary of his thoughts and his prayers along the way. So anyway, one day some of the men from this group of friends who had gone down there to, to tell the Alka people about Jesus, they made first contact with the people. And that same day those Alka people murdered these missionaries. Their wives were left behind as as widows. And the amazing part of the story is that their wives went back anyway to these people that had killed their spouses, their husbands, their friends. And they told them about Jesus and they forgave them. And, and the Alka tribe converted, the whole tribe converted to Christianity. But here's what I really want to tell you about this. Jim Elliott, he had been writing this diary. And in his diary, as his wife flipped through it after his death, she found underlined and starred this phrase where he wrote, He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. 
That was his mantra for life. That was his motto for his life. I want you to think about that for your own life. He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Here's the deal. You cannot keep your life. No matter how hard you might try to hold on to it, you can't. You're going to lose it or it will be taken away from you at some point. You cannot hold on to it. But if you will give it away, if you will give it to God, then you will gain a treasure, unimaginable worth which no one and nothing can ever take away from you. Forgiveness, acceptance, salvation, new life, a relationship with your creator, everlasting hope. Let me ask you these two questions. Number one, do you understand the value of this treasure? Because if you did, it would change the way you live. Do you understand the value of this treasure? Number two, do you view Christianity primarily in terms of what you gain or what you give up? Do you view Christianity primarily in terms of what you gain or what you give up. You know, it's funny, as I look back on the things in my life that I was so worried about losing, if I started following Jesus wholeheartedly, this seems so silly, so trivial now in retrospect. And it's, I can't even believe that I almost let those things keep me back from taking hold of this treasure. You see, Christianity isn't about what you give up, it's about what you gain. Now think about this too, right? Let's just really, because I think we take this for granted, right? Okay, a guy finds a treasure, he goes home, sells everything he has, buys the field, Bada boom, it's done, right? Great, good for him. He's got some treasure. But think about what happened in the process. Now, if this was you, you find some treasure and you go home and you can't tell anybody about the treasure, right? Because if you tell somebody about the treasure, it's not gonna be there anymore when you go back to get it. So you go home and you start selling everything you have. Can you imagine what your family members, what your neighbors are gonna think about you? You know, you're selling everything. They're gonna go, what are you doing selling everything? Yeah, I'm just, uh, everything's gotta go. You wanna buy this? I'll sell it to you for really cheap. Everything's gotta go. And they'd be like, what are you doing? You know, you gotta sell, you're selling your business, you're selling your car, you're selling everything. And they would think, you're unhinged, man. You've lost touch with reality. What are you doing? You'd look ridiculous to them. They'd be having interventions, right? Like we've all written something out because we care about you, right? And, and here's, here's what I'm saying, is that as Christians, because of this treasure that we've found, there are areas of our lives that are going to seem ridiculous to people who don't know about the treasure that we have. And they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand because they don't know the treasure that we found. You see, as followers of Jesus, we've received this great treasure and it's going to cause us to live in ways that people on the outside might consider utterly ridiculous. Okay, like somebody might look at my finances and say, you know what, this, uh, this is not good financial sense. You're just being, you're giving too much away, right? This is just a little too much on the generosity. This is ridiculous. Someone might look at the way that you, you maybe your, your marriage, and they say, why are you sticking with that guy? I mean, look at him. Why are you sticking with him? And, and you say, well, because of God's rule and reign in my life. And they say, you know what, that's ridiculous. Or people would look at the way that you treat your enemies or the way that you forgive those who have hurt you and, and sinned against you and they say, that's ridiculous. Why are you doing that? It doesn't make any sense to me. Of course it seems ridiculous to them. They don't know about the treasure that you have found. If they did, then maybe they would understand. You see, the generosity, the faithfulness, the forgiveness, the love, even for your enemies because that's what Jesus has done for you and given to you. That changes everything. But now here's the thing I want to tell you. Maybe this story isn't about that at all, actually. Or maybe it is. I don't know. Or, or maybe it's actually about something completely different. Right? And you're like, wait a second, I was taking notes on this. What are you telling me, Nick? Are you going to change it all completely? Well, stick with me. What if this story is actually about something else completely? What if we are not the ones who find the treasure? What if we are the treasure 
And the person who finds the treasure is God. Well, what about that? Because in the parable right before this one, one that we're going to cover in coming weeks, there's another parable about a field. And Jesus' disciples come up to him in verse 36 of this same chapter, and they say, Jesus, we don't understand this parable that you said. Could you please explain it to us? And he says, yeah, I can. Verse 37, he says, okay, the one who sows the good seed in the field is the son of man, him, right? And then he says, and the field is the world. Okay, so what if... Right? That's only a few verses ago. What if in this parable too, the field is the world? Who is the one who's come into the world and given everything they have in order to redeem a treasure from the world? Well, that can't be us. We've never done that. That's Jesus. And so that would mean that the merchant in the parable is not us, but it's God and the treasure is us. Right? And the point of the parable is actually this, that God considers you such a great treasure, so precious and valuable to him that he was willing to come and give up everything in order to take hold of you and make you his own. That is the message of the gospel, is it not? It's not what we do for him, it's what he's done for us because of his love for us. Anything we do for him, that's just a response. It's a response of a grateful and thankful heart that's blown away that he's loved us that much that he would come and he would give everything in order that we might be his. This parable is a story about how God sees you. It's a story about how God sees you. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We are the treasure that's redeemed in the story. Maybe you say, wait a second. But then why does Jesus need to buy the world back? Jesus already owns the world, right? I don't know. Think about this. Three times Jesus refers to Satan as the prince or the ruler of this world. When Jesus is in the wilderness early in his ministry, read about in Matthew chapter 4, one of the temptations that Satan brings to him while he's there in the wilderness is Satan comes up and says to him, okay, I'll make you a deal. You can skip all this suffering. You can skip the cross. You can skip all this stuff you're going to go through. I'll make it real easy on you. If you will just bow down to me right now and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus doesn't argue with him, does he? I mean, you would think Jesus might say, well, First of all, that's a, that's a terrible offer anyway because I already own all the kingdoms of the world. They're already mine. But yet Jesus doesn't argue with him at all. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we're told that even though God has rule and reign over our lives, his kingdom can be within us if we have given our lives to him. Yet we should be aware that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And so the message of the gospel is that God loves you. He loves you and he gave up everything in order to redeem the world so that you could be his. In the book of Revelation, chapter five. Book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. It's, an, it's apocalyptic literature, which means that much of, it, much of it is metaphorical and sometimes it's a little bit hard to discern what exactly is being talked about. But there's one part here that's very crystal clear. There's no question what it's talking about. John the Apostle wrote this book based on a vision that he had while he was in exile for his faith on the prison island called Patmos off the coast of Turkey. 
And in this book, right, he, he gets this revelation from Jesus, this vision of what's going to happen in the future. And basically, God is saying, okay, I'm going to give you a vision. Here's how it's all going to end. Here's the scoreboard. God wins. Kingdoms and powers might try their best. But in the end, God wins. Evil will be defeated once and for all. Death and sickness and pain are all coming to an end. God's kingdom, his rule and his reign over all things will be established in fullness. And it will last forever. And that day is indeed coming, John, no matter how dark today looks that day is indeed coming so take heart and live this life in the knowledge of this vision that I've given you of how it's all going to end and the fact that God wins and, and that you get to be a victor along with him and in Revelation chapter 5 in this vision John gets a glimpse of heaven you can turn there if you'd like it's an amazing section here's what happens God is on the throne he says I see God seated on the throne and around him there are people worshiping there are angels and it says that in the hand of the one who sat on the throne that's God is a scroll and it says on the scroll there's writing on the outside and there's writing on the inside and it's sealed with seven seals and an angel steps forward and says who is worthy to open the scrolls and break the seals and it says that no one was found on earth or under the earth who was worthy to open the scroll. And John says, and so when I saw this, that no one was found worthy to open the scroll, I wept aloud. He's brokenhearted. He's in despair. No one can open the scroll. And then one of the elders, it says, but one of the elders came up and said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then he says, and then I saw a lamb standing, looking as though it had been slain. Is this ringing any bells to anybody? And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders knelt before the, or fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Check out the song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The book of Revelation then goes on after that to tell the story of how each of those scrolls were opened and what happened. But here's the thing I wanted to show you real quick. What was that scroll? What was the scroll? And why was John so distraught when no one could open it? Here's the thing. In the first century, every parcel of land would have a title deed. That title deed would be written on a scroll. On the front of the, on the, so the part when you roll it up that faces outwards would be the address or the, the title of that parcel of land. On the inside would be all the details about that land. That scroll, what is it? It represents the title deed to the earth. It represents the title deed to humanity. And when no one is found who can take this scroll and open it, John weeps and he falls into despair because he thinks, oh no, I will never be redeemed. We're all lost forever until he hears the good news. No, there is one who can open the scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain because he was slain and by his blood he has ransomed us. See, that's the point of the parable here, guys. God loves you. He treasures you so much so that Jesus came and he did everything and he gave his own life as a ransom for you so that you could receive the greatest treasure in the world, forgiveness of sins, a new identity, a relationship with God, life everlasting. When you look at the parable in this way, 
it also begs a few questions, doesn't it? Number one, do you understand how valuable you are? Do you understand how much you matter to God? I hope you do. He loves you very much. This parable shows it. Secondly, I want to ask you this question. Do you see your life as your own? Or do you understand that if he has purchased you, then you belong to him? Therefore, you should live for him because he purchased you with a price. You're no longer your own. Your life is not your own for you do whatever you will with it. He becomes your Lord and your King and your Master. He has rule and reign over your life. Your life is no longer your own because he's purchased it. So which is it, guys? Is it the first explanation or the second one? Is it him or is it us? Are we the ones who find the treasure that, is, that he is the treasure? Or is he the one who has come and, and found us and found us to be treasure and redeemed us and ransomed us? Well, of course, you know what I'm going to say. It's both. Of course, it's both. That's the message of the gospel. He has come and given everything for us. And if we really understand what he gives us, what he's done for us, then we will be willing to give everything that we have and everything that we are to him, not holding anything back. What an incredible story. But that's not all. I'll finish just by making reference to these other two parables that we read here at the end of this section. There was another parable right after this that says that there were some fishermen and they were fishing. They brought in a big load of fish. Some of the fish were kept and some of the fish were thrown out. And Jesus says, so it will be at the end of the age. What is he saying in this parable? Here's what he's saying. Heaven and hell are real and not everybody's gonna go to heaven. And then at the end of the section, he says this. Do you understand these things that I've spoken to you? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? And they say, yeah, we get it. And he says, okay. Well, if, you, if that's the case, if you really get it, then here's what you will do. A wise person will take the things that you have learned, you'll store them away in your mind, put them on the shelf in your heart, in your mind, and you will bring them forth at the applicable time and you will apply them when necessary at times in your lives. And that's what I want to encourage you to do today. You know, these are short stories packed with tons of meaning and it applies to all of us in different ways where we're at today. Maybe it's going to apply to you a couple of years down the road in a different way. But today, depending on where each of you are at, I want to encourage you. Maybe there are some of you here today and the main thing that you need to take away from these stories and apply to your life is how much God loves you. You need to be reassured of that. You need to see it again. Maybe there are others of you here today and you need to be reminded that heaven and hell are real and not everybody's going to heaven. And today is the day when you need to embrace the gospel and whatever it is in your life that, that you have been allowing to keep you back and, and keep you back from taking that step of truly giving your life to God and letting him rule and reign over your life. Today's the day when you need to see Jesus for the treasure that he is and embrace him with no reservations, wholeheartedly. Maybe there's some of you today and the thing you need to be reminded of is that your life is not your own, that you've been purchased with a price and for a purpose. Whatever it is, however these stories speak to you, I want to encourage you, apply these things to your life. And my prayer for you is that you would see afresh and anew today how much God loves you, what he has done for you, and the incredible treasure that is yours in Jesus Christ. May those truths shape the way that we live as we leave here today. Amen? Would you please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible treasure that you are. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would be able to see you for the treasure that you truly are. Lord, at the same time, Lord, we want to thank you that you have considered us a treasure and that you would come 
And you would, at, at expense to yourself, give your life and give up everything in order to take hold of us. Lord, what a privilege, what a joy, what grace that is. And Lord, I pray that there would be none of us here today that would consider that a small thing. None of us here today who wouldn't say, you know what, I see what you've done for me. I see the value of it and I wholeheartedly embrace it. And I would sell everything and follow you. Lord, would you please do that work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 